Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Well, let me encourage you to turn in your Bible. Uh, in, if you've got a church Bible, then it's page 1042, uh, Luke chapter 10, and uh, reading from verse 25 uh, down to verse 28. We're beginning a new series looking uh, in Luke. Luke 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. It has been wonderful to see so many people wanting to do something about the refugee crisis in Europe that we've just been thinking about and as we continue to think about our response to the church family next week we'll consider consider the parable of the good samaritan and we will be challenged massively from god's word about how we ought to be responding so if you want to avoid that don't come but this week i want to suggest that the plight of the refugees is a picture of the entire human race Now, look, I'm not for one minute wanting to minimise their plight. I'm certainly not suggesting that our immediate situation is anything like theirs. But as we look at them, we see a picture of what is going on in the hearts and lives of everyone on this planet. All of us are searching for something in this broken world. Some of us are acutely aware of that. We feel lost. We know that sort of uneasy feeling that we don't have what we need. I was talking to somebody last week who's about to travel the world to try and find himself. Many pursue a career to fulfil their ambitions and desires. Some do the opposite, that they leave the rat race in search for a more meaningful existence. They give up their career for a secluded life in the mountains. Others think they'll find what they're looking for in another person. They're waiting to fall deeply and madly in love forever. Most of us don't see the answer to life in any one of those things, but having them all. So we want to fall in love and enjoy a fulfilling career which will fund a luxurious lifestyle, give us enough money to laze on a sun-drenched beach in paradise, escaping the madness of life at least for a few weeks each year. The point is we're looking for life, deep, satisfying, fulfilling life. Well, of course we are. And there's nothing wrong with wanting that. Now, it seems that longing was the issue behind the question that this lawyer asked Jesus in Luke chapter 10. Again, it's there in verse 25. This lawyer comes up to Jesus and says, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The lawyer's question to Jesus was about getting meaningful life and life that was eternal. He was asking about life that never ends because one of the great problems with anything that we look to in this world to give us life 
is that it just doesn't last. Throw yourself into anything, make anything your everything, and it can be snatched away from you, leaving you with nothing. Give yourself to the pursuit of a career and someone else may get the promotion that you have worked so hard for. Or redundancy or ill health blocks your career path. If you manage to overcome those obstacles, retirement brings your career to an end. Nothing in this life lasts, not forever. If it's not a career but a person you look to to give you that meaningful life, then you find yourself devastated if they leave you or if they stop loving you or if they get ill and certainly when they die. And so the lawyer's question in verse 25 is a thoughtful one. He asks, where can I find this life, this life that we all want? And he says, it's going to have to last forever if it's going to do the job of satisfying me. What must I do to, to inherit eternal life? Just so we're not confused about this lawyer, he was not an expert in criminal law, employment law, immigration law. He's not that kind of lawyer. He was an expert in the Jewish law, what we now call the Old Testament, and especially the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He was an expert in that law. So he was a clever bloke. But what he did in verse 25 was not his greatest moment. Do you see it there? He stood up to test Jesus. Now, for an intelligent person, that's a really stupid thing to do, to try and put Jesus on the spot, try to, try to catch him out, try to put him in the dock. As soon as we do that, we're on a very sticky wicket because when we engage with Jesus, we are engaging with the greatest mind that ever lived. Still, despite that wrong motive behind the question, it's a cracking question all the same. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responded to the question by asking a question. He often does that. Verse 26, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? Okay, Mr. Lawyer, let's engage with this question on your terms, says Jesus. Let's look for the answer in your own area of expertise. What does God's law teach on this matter? And the lawyer answered, verse 27, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And love your neighbour as yourself. Love God with everything you have and love your neighbour as yourself. And verse 28, Jesus said to the lawyer, you've answered correctly. That is how we find life, a life that isn't ruined by the great problem of death. We find it by loving God with everything we have and loving our neighbour as ourselves. That is the secret to life, to an abundant, fulfilling, satisfying, forever lasting life. Let me then just stop there for a moment and ask you tonight, do you believe this? If you're not yet a committed Christian here tonight, thank you so much for coming. I'm assuming that you don't fully believe this yet or or you would be a follower of Jesus Christ. So I wonder, as you listen in, will you allow me as best I can tonight to try and help you to see that this is where you will find what you're looking for? Christian here tonight, let me ask you, do you believe this? I mean, do you really believe that you'll find life by loving God with everything you have and loving those around you as much as you love yourself? Now, please don't mishear me. I'm not asking you if you believe that being a Christian will get you life beyond the grave. I'm trying to get to something more than Christianity being the greatest life assurance policy on the market. 
That's a kind of crude way to say it. I mean, it is that, and it's brilliant to know that Jesus Christ does guarantee life beyond the grave. But Christian, I'm asking you tonight, do you really believe that loving God with everything you have is the very best way to live life because it is the best way to be satisfied and fulfilled and because it is the the way to find your deepest longings met? I suppose in a sentence I'm asking, do you believe God himself will satisfy you? And when I ask you, do you really believe this? I'm asking you if you believe it so that you are giving your life, your all for this, giving your energy to the pursuit of God. Is he what you live for? Does loving the Lord your God fill your horizon, dictate the way you use your time, grab your heart? Is knowing the Lord and loving him what you put most effort into in life? See, if not, then Christian person here, it might just be that you don't really believe that loving God is where you'll find life. I'm not saying you're not a Christian. I'm just saying, do you you find that thing that I find all the time, my heart being pulled to other things that are not bad in and of themselves. They just seem to be so much more attractive. They seem to be the place where I'm really going to find what life is about. And all the time I'm being drawn to those. And here Jesus is saying, no, you will find that thing you're looking for in God. He is your satisfaction. So Christian here this evening, will you allow me as best I can this evening to try and help you to see that this is where you will find what you are looking for? Well, here's the first thing to note, and there is a handout. Uh, If you've uh, uh, found it already, then fine. If not, you might like to... Um, see where we're going and take notes the first thing on the handout first point to love God and neighbor is the fulfillment of the law or to put it another way to love God and neighbor summarizes the whole of God's word see that's what Jesus affirms here in these few verses Jesus asked the lawyer verse 26 what is written in the law and the lawyer responded love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul with all your strength and with all your mind And verse 28, Jesus replied, you've answered correctly. This is a a challenge to me that I asked myself when I was reading this. Is that how I would summarise God's law? When I talk to people who aren't Christians about this, largely they think that God's law is about a set of rules and regulations. One person said to me, it's all thou shalt not. Thou shalt not do this, that and the other. Now look, if, if we think that's the big message that God has for the human race, you know, you can't do this, that and the other thing, no wonder people don't want to follow him and be with him and know him. Who wants to be told what not to do all their lives? I've got a life to live, not a life not to live. It's not just unbelievers who think like this. Christians don't always think so differently either. I've had conversations with Christians in the last few months and it's clear that they think that God is just about giving them rules to obey. Rules and laws they don't want to obey, but they'll obey them because if they don't, they feel guilty. They don't really understand what they're about. No wonder many Christians don't have joy in their lives. This little engagement between Jesus and the lawyer is very helpful. It's about finding life and, it's, uh, and we do that when we love God and we love our neighbour. And he says, 
God's word is about that. So if when you're reading it, you're coming to some other conclusion, you're not reading it correctly. Firstly then, to love God and neighbour is the fulfilment of the law. Secondly, to love God is good for me. You see, we see that in verse 27. Now look, although it is clear from verse 27 that it is to love God and to love our neighbour, it's a whole package, from this point on this week, I'm narrowing down our thinking to loving God because next week we'll be thinking about how we love our neighbour. So can you bear that in mind? It's not that I've forgotten the second bit. I'm deliberately leaving it to next time. So for now, to love God is good for me. See, verse 27 again comes off the back of the question in verse 25. So verse 27, to love God with everything I have is how I find eternal life. To love God is how I find a life that is both fulfilling and everything I want and it lasts forever. So to love God is good for me. And look, I know that parents tell their children that Brussels sprouts are good for them. I know that kids up and down the country sit at dinner tables with grumpy faces as they reluctantly force down foul-tasting vegetables that give them terrible wind while their parents say, they're good for you, they're good for you. So when I say to love God is good for you, please don't think that loving God is anything like eating Brussels sprouts. That's not my point at all. No, when God tells us to live this way, it won't just do us good in some way that vegetables do us good, it will bring me life. It will bring me the abundant, fulfilling life that I'm looking for deep down. And that is why God tells me to love him. That's a huge surprise to many people. This would do me good. For most, God telling us to love him not only sounds like a really life-restricting thing, But when you think about it quite carefully, it sounds like a really selfish and self-centred thing for God to ask of anyone. I remember talking about this verse with a very straight-talking undergraduate. This is a brilliant comment. He'd seriously thought about it. He said, God tells me that I should love him and put him first above everything and everyone else. Who does he think he is? Now, of course, I could have responded with the sarcastic, well, he thinks he's God, but the question actually deserves more than that. It's a great question. Because if I or anyone else were to say to you and to everyone else, you should love me above everything else, you would respond, who do you think you are? This does sound selfish and self-absorbed. Worship me, says God. Love me. Begs the question, he's got a lonely dictatorial megalomaniac. Now, if you ask that question, obviously I'm going to say, no, he's not, because I'm the vicar. And it doesn't pay for the vicar to say that God is a lonely dictatorial megalomaniac, especially when there's a bishop here. (laughs) Look, God doesn't need us to love him. He is perfectly satisfied in himself. No, he tells us to love him because loving him is for my good. This is how I find life. I have been made to be in relationship with God. I love it when I meet people who've been married for years and years and are blissfully happy and they say we were made for each other. It's beautiful when people are like that. That's what God is saying about you and him. He says we were made for each other. You were made for him. That means we actually can't find life and what it's all about 
away from him, apart from him, without him. So when God tells us to love him with everything we have, he is telling us because it is the best thing for us. In fact, God loves us too much not to tell us to love him with everything we have. He loves us so much he doesn't want us to spend our lives going down blind alleys looking in all the wrong places to try and find life. Indeed, it would be really unkind and unloving of God of him not to tell us to love him. For nothing else apart from God himself will give us what we're really looking for, do you see? We've already begun to think this way, but let me explain further. Uh, Throw yourself into your career, and it may be wonderfully fulfilling at the time, but eventually it will let you down. It will let you down when you don't reach the top of the ladder, if that's been everything to you. It will let you down when others don't appreciate your work, or when you're made redundant, or when you retire. And it will let you down when you do reach the top, and you realise it wasn't all it was cracked up to be. And then you'll have spent all those years thinking that your career is everything, everything you wanted and everything that it will give you. And then you'll discover that it didn't quite live up to all the hype and all those years are gone. And when that happens, you'll blame the job and you'll say to yourself, I'm in the wrong job. I need a promotion. I need a different job. And you'll have that nagging feeling all your life that it's the next thing that will give you what you want. I just haven't got it yet. You see, God is trying to rescue you from that. To keep finding it's not the thing. And if it's not the pursuit of of a career, it will be something else that lets you down. You might look to another human being to be your everything. But every other human being will let you down. Either because they won't love you as you think they should, or they'll not live up to your standards, or they'll find someone else. Or even if you're blissfully happy and enjoy each other for 60 years or more of marriage, they'll let you down through no fault of their own when they die. And if they have been your everything, what will you have when they're gone? You'll have nothing. And besides, making someone your everything is too big a burden for anyone to live up to. So you see this often in young love when somebody thinks this other person is their everything and this, the other person can't bear the burden of being their everything and they feel suffocated in the relationship and they start to pull away. I could go on. If I look for anything to be my everything, I'll be disappointed and eventually devastated because nothing can satisfy me and sustain me. But God will never let me down. He will never disappoint me. He will never leave me. He will never die. And here's the thing. At my death, I will be brought into his presence and enjoy him forever. And if he is my everything when I die, I won't be losing anything. When he has been my heart's desire and my goal in life, death will bring me fully into the thing I've longed for and striven for and delighted in all my life, namely a joyful relationship with him, with nothing between us. You see, God tells me to love him for my good, for he is where I find life, the eternal life of verse 25. Isn't that good of God? Who does he think he is? Well, he knows he's God, but he loves you so much. That's why he tells you to live that way. To love God and neighbour is the fulfilment of the law. To love God is good for me. Third, if you're still following over the page, love for God must be exclusive. 
See, for me, the challenge of these verses comes in the repeated word, all, in verse 27. Do you see it there? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. With God, it is all or nothing. I must give my all to God or I'm giving nothing. Again, let me tell you what a thoughtful unbeliever said to me a few years ago. I really enjoy spending time with unbelievers, not just because it's good to do evangelism, but because often unbelievers ask the sort of questions we're too frightened to ask because they're thinking really clearly. And this uh, person said to me, why does it have to be everything? He said, I like what I'm hearing about Christianity, but why do I have to be fully committed to this? I'm happy to come to church and to believe in God, but why do I have to put God first above everything else? I said to him, you've got a girlfriend. Say that to her tonight and see how she reacts. Tell her that you like her. Tell her that you love her, but you don't want to be fully committed to her. You want to be around her from time to time, but there are other things that are important to you and you don't want to give them up for her. He got the point. Christianity is a love relationship, not a set of rules and regulations. It's not about being a member of a club. A loving relationship demands my all. Those of you who are in committed relationships right now, imagine going home this evening and saying to your partner, I love you, I really do, but I love someone else. Not that I don't love you, I do, just that I love him or her as well. And in case you think that's a slightly far-fetched illustration, sadly, down through the years, as I've spent time with guys who've had extramarital affairs, this is exactly what they do say to their wife, because they want both. It's not that I don't love you, darling, I do, but I love her too. And that doesn't work. Doesn't rub with the wife, doesn't rub with me when I'm listening to it either. Love for God is no different. I must love God with my all. But again, look, God doesn't say that to spoil our fun or to cramp our style. It's kind of God to tell us this because this says, uh, he says this to us because he knows what is best for us. Because he knows that he is best for us. And if we're only giving him a little bit, we lose out. It's only as we make him our everything that we are rescued from dissatisfaction and disappointment that comes when we start to chase after other things. Which is why I have to keep reading this because I'm always chasing after other things. I need to keep being cold. Come back to this. That's not going to satisfy. Give him your all. To love God and neighbour is the fulfilment of the law. To love God is good for me. Love for God must be exclusive. And fourthly, love God with everything. See, to find this fulfilling, satisfying life that I'm made for, so verse 25, I must love God with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind. With my whole heart, I need to be emotionally engaged in my love for God. I think um, those of us who call ourselves conservative evangelicals, it doesn't matter whether you call yourself that or not, need to hear this. Love for God is not a mere decision. I decided to follow Jesus when I was 20. Great. Love for God is certainly not merely a matter of rule-keeping, religious observance. It's not even about being obedient only and keeping God's law. 
Now, of course, don't mishear me. Love for God is worked out in doing certain things. If I don't treat Caroline well, or if I don't ever do my fair share around the house, when I say, I love you, darling, she'll reply, well, you have a funny way of showing it. We know that love is worked out in actions, but it has to be more than deeds. Doing things are not proof of love. Jesus was speaking to a lawyer here. I think of something Jesus said to a whole bunch of lawyers in Mark chapter 7. These lawyers were very religious. They tried to keep the law down to the last detail. And Jesus said to them, this is Mark chapter 7, verses 6 and 7. He said, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Your heart's are far from me. We might say, your heart's not in it. You might be doing the right thing, but your heart's not in it. We can be doing all sorts of moral and religious stuff, you see, but not be loving God. Love for God must be more than doing things. It's about an affection of the heart. It's about increasingly finding him compellingly attractive. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, secondly. This is to love God with my whole self. Not to just give him part of what I am, but to give him my all. I loved hearing our guest preacher last week, Lee Gatiss, when he talked about becoming a committed Christian. If you were here, you'll remember this. It's worth repeating. If you weren't, it's worth hearing. He uh, sketched out how he'd sort of become a Christian back when he was uh, a, a child, uh, of uh, 10 or 11 I think he said and then he went off to university and he uh, one day sketched out his life on a piece of paper he drew a strict stick man in the middle him and then he put around him all the things that were important to him his studies sport family friends Jesus was there as well different things around him that were important and uh, he went to church a few days later and the preacher said some of you may have Jesus as a part of your life He may even be important to you. But being a Christian is about having Jesus at the centre of your life. You need to put Jesus at the centre of the page and everything should revolve around him. And Lee said that had such a big impact on him, changed him completely. That's this, isn't it? Love the Lord your God with all your soul. And look, be sure of this. When I do love the Lord my God with everything, everyone around me benefits When I love God like this, God tells me to love my wife and my family. And he tells me to work hard. And he tells me that friends are important and to give myself to them and so on. So people don't lose out when you put Jesus at the centre. You get everything right and you start to treat everybody else properly. Which is what we'll see more of next time. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. And third, with all your strength. Put effort into loving God. Put all your effort into loving God. Effort? Really? That's exactly how relationships work. That's what we do with relationships that matter. When Caroline and I were going out a long time ago, 
Now, she lived in Bristol and I lived in Ware in Hertfordshire. It's awful growing up living in Ware. You say to people, where do you come from? And you say, Ware. And they say, yeah, where do you come from? <laughs> Ware in Hertfordshire. You know. So anyway, I lived in Ware. She lived in Bristol, 150 miles apart if you don't know your geography. I had one day off a week. I know people think I only work one day a week, but actually I had one day off a week. Caroline was a nurse and she worked shifts. It was really hard to find time to see each other. We had to work hard to see each other. I would drive to Bristol when I was tired just to spend time with her. We had to plan ahead if we were going to meet up in Windsor, which is about the midpoint between her home and mine. It would have been so much easier. Life would have been so much less complicated if I'd stayed at home. But I love her. I wanted to spend time with her. It takes effort. Isn't that right in your relationships? Make effort. Go and buy her some flowers. If you haven't done it for a while, go and do it. Love the Lord your God with all your strength. But some people make no effort in their relationship with God. They turn up for church and small group when it suits them. They won't put themselves out in service for God and his people. They won't work at spiritual disciplines like reading the Bible and praying every day. They don't carve out any time for that. They simply don't put themselves out. And it begs the question, do you love him? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and fourthly, with all your mind. John Piper, he's the best guy to read on all of this stuff. But John Piper writes, to love God, we must know him. God would not be honoured by groundless love. You can say you're loving God and not be loving him because you don't really know him. You're loving something else that looks like God but isn't really him. It's obvious, again, whenever we think about it, we, we do want to use our minds. When I first fell in love with Caroline, I wanted to know more and more about her. Of course I did. I wanted to know about her life before we met. I wanted to know what she liked and disliked. I loved discovering more about her character. And the more I got to know her, the more I loved her. Not just because I loved what I discovered, but because I wanted to know what she liked and disliked. So I was able to do and say the things that would please her and make her happy. I had to think about that. I had to use my mind. We should love the Lord our God with all our mind. Think about him. Find out more about him. Why would I not want to find out about him? For eternity, we're going to be finding. There's so much to find out. We're going to be continually learning new things about him. It's going to be wonderful. And here's the thing. The more we know about him, the more we love him, the more we want to know him and love him. There seems to be this strange anti-intellectualism amongst some Christians. I regularly meet Christians who say, I just want a simple faith. Now, sometimes I know what that means, but often I reckon it's just an excuse for being lazy. I don't want to use my mind. I just want a simple faith. Don't complicate stuff. Use your mind to discover more about your God for a mindless response to God will not actually be love for God. Just be love for something you are making up in your mind anyway. Well, as we close, how can I know God? Well, Jesus came into the world to make him known. We know God both through Jesus' death, bringing us back into relationship with God and through looking at Jesus, who is the image of God. See, Jesus is everything when it comes to knowing God. We can't know God apart from Jesus. He reconciles us to the Father, but he is the image of God. And so he is the person we must go to in our desire to love God. 
If you're an unbeliever here tonight, thanks for listening. I wouldn't be at all surprised if uh, there aren't one or two here who aren't yet Christians who've heard this and you're intrigued enough at least to want to know more. To look into whether, whether God really is the one who will give you this fulfilling abundant life that you know deep down you're looking for. Uh, look, if that's you, again, thanks for coming. And, and can I encourage you to come to our Christianity Explored course? It starts at the beginning of October. I can tell you more about it. In, in that course, we look at the person of Jesus to see whether God really exists and to see whether really God can deliver on this kind of promise. Uh, I think you'll love it. Uh, talk to me afterwards if you want to know more about that. But as I close, Christian here, if you're honest, and this is what's happened to me this week, you'll be saying with me, I don't love God like this. This is exactly why Jesus came and died on the cross. To forgive us for, for our substituting other things in the place of God, he says, I'll come and be the substitute. I'll come and put myself in, in your place so that you can be forgiven. So Christian, if you feel I'm not living up to this, of course you're not. Remember again the forgiveness that is yours in Christ. In fact, in some ways, if you're feeling terrible, think how amazing that I so don't love God this way, but he so loves me that he would send Jesus to forgive me even though I'm so not like this. Because the moment you think that way, you will be amazed by his love. You will know you're forgiven and restored through his death. And suddenly you'll love him all the more. And you'll want to love him all the more. And as you love him all the more, you'll find this sweet, fulfilling life that he's talking about here. There's only one thing we can do in response, I think, to this, and that is to praise him.